peace be with you and with your spirit. Welcome to another episode of St. Anthony's Tongue, and welcome to another Lord's Line listener Q&A. Soon we will open up the line to callers. Similarly, we will read off questions that were submitted through Instagram, through Patreon, and Discord. So I'm very excited to be back on the Lord's Line. So first, let's talk about what we've been up to on the podcast. I know a lot of people don't necessarily listen in order, and I think that's good. My podcast was not intended to necessarily listen in order. I think this season works best, but a lot of my old previous Saint episodes, feel free to jump around. But because of this, I know a lot of people don't or have not listened to all of the mysticism series yet. So here's a reminder of where we've been, where we're going. Most recently, we covered the great St. John of the Cross, who is one of my personal mystical heroes of the faith. I really love how he uses poetry and passion to describe this transformative aspect of the divine. So often we approach God through our intellect and we look over approaching him through the heart. Even that phrase, approaching God through the heart, it seems so foreign. How does one do that? Well, one does that through contemplative and mystical prayer. And in Catholicism, and I would say Western spirituality as a whole, we see prayer as a plea, as asking, and that's, that's part of it. However, contemplative prayer in the Christian tradition is a system in which you are transformed. I would say another way we approach spirituality or mystical spirituality in the West is through some kind of hidden knowledge, some kind of idea that there's this hidden way to approach God. We must be sitting in a certain posture. We must use the right colored candles. We must use the right wording in a prayer or, or a mantra, and then we can tap into these hidden energetic forces. Now, are there psychosomatic things that can assist us and going and delving more deeply into a state of prayer? Absolutely, of course. Though God is not dependent on us figuring out the Rubik's Cube to reach him. God is reachable quite easily. But in order to reach him more easily, we simply must go to him in prayer and be transformed by his grace. And St. John of the Cross does a great job of discussing this in his spiritual canticle when he discusses the lover who goes out to seek the beloved, the lover being us or the soul, and the beloved being God. And my favorite part, which I have talked about millions of times now, has been when the lover sees God in all things, and the birds, and the creatures, and the flowers. She sees God there. She sees glimmers of God in those things. But she knows that there's still more, so she yearns for something more. She is still moved by nature. She is still moved by beauty. But that beauty just makes her long for God more because she knows if his creation is beautiful, how much more beautiful is he? So there's always this going beyond, beyond, beyond in the work of St. John of the Cross, which I really love and enjoy. Similarly, we get into the dark night of the soul and the senses. I think these concepts have been watered down quite a bit over the centuries. The dark nights have now become synonymous with any bad day or spiritual crisis, and that's part of it. Though, a true dark night of the soul is a stage that we meet 
and come across in a spiritual journey. The dark night of the senses, though, I think that's more common. That's simply an obstacle that can overall strengthen our love for the divine. So please check out those episodes if you have not. And then the most recent is the Jesus Prayer. And in that episode, we get into this concept in the East and Eastern Christianity of what's called hesychasm, which is, it's many things which I discuss in the episode, but one of the core tenets is repetition of a prayer such as the Jesus Prayer, which is Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, or some variant. In that episode, we discuss the power and the usefulness of this prayer, and also how does this prayer compare to Western contemplation? I hear a lot of people call the Jesus Prayer the Rosary of the East, and that's so incorrect. (laughs) Unfortunately, though, how we pray the Rosary in the West, it's not all that incorrect, but it should be incorrect, let me explain. The Rosary is a spiritual system. The Rosary starts with vocal prayer, which will lead us, it leads our soul and our spirit to meditation, and then meditation, truly meditating on these mysteries, leads to contemplation, which is a grace given to us by God. It can be a consolation, it can be an insight, it can be a feeling. So there's those steps. Whereas the Jesus prayer would would just be vocal prayer, but it's vocal prayer in a very unique way. It's consistent vocal prayer, and you can put emphasis on all the words in the prayer to make it a continual plea. So unfortunately, how we pray the rosary in the West We've kind of glossed over the mysteries. We just pray on the words. We pray the vocal prayer of it, and that's most people's focus. So sadly, a watered-down rosary is kind of similar to the Jesus prayer. But also, the Jesus prayer, too, is something that transforms. It's something that starts with this repetition, but that repetition becomes ingrained within us until we hear that prayer calling out all around us. So the Jesus Prayer is a very beautiful practice. It's one of my favorite spiritual practices, and it mirrors a lot of the practices I had on my spiritual journey prior to coming back to Catholicism. So check out that episode as well. I hope you enjoy it. And then next, after this, we are going to get into the cloud of unknowing as well as centering prayer, which is kind of in the same vein as St. John of the Cross going beyond. It's all about transcendence. And then similarly, it's a lot about uh, repetition too, much like you repeat the Jesus prayer and hesychasm, you also repeat certain phrases in centering prayer. So I'm looking forward to sharing that with you very soon. And then on a personal level, just what have I personally been focusing on spiritually? What have I been fascinated with lately? And if you're a member of the Patreon, if you're on the Discord, you will know that answer. It's been the concept of purgatory. And I'm going to get into that a little bit more later in this Lord's line. I'm also going to share some clips from some Patreon content in this Lord's line on purgatory. Purgatory is just fascinating for many reasons. I guess I'll just share it now. The major reason it's fascinating is purgatory is a great example of theological opinion within Catholicism. Now, what do I mean by that? If you go and look at the church's definition of purgatory. It's very simple, it's very brief. This comes from the Council of Trent, and then previously the writings of, I believe, Pope Leo, and then those are affirmed in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Now, what does it say? Very briefly, it says this. I'm not reading verbatim, I'm summarizing, but it says, 
Purgatory is a place in which a soul becomes cleansed before entering the kingdom. Full stop. That's all. Now there's some, in the catechism at least, there's some wording and verbiage that gets into why we believe in purgatory, scriptural and traditional beliefs. But it's that, that's it. It's just a place of purification, of purgation. And everything else is what is considered theological opinion. So things like how long a soul stays in purgatory, the nature of purgatory, the, is the fire metaphorical or is the fire of purgatory real, if there's fire at all. All of these things are theological opinion. Now, granted, and I've said this before on my social media channels, that theological opinion is brought to us by great minds like St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Gertrude the Great, St. Bonaventure, Francis de Sales, Catherine of Genoa. So, so the theological opinion is, is wonderful, great theological opinion you should not write off. But it goes back to this misbelief, this misconception that many of us have, and that is that certain things are set in stone when it comes to Catholic theology. But no. So what do you have to, and I'm using air quotes around have to believe, you have to affirm that purgatory, heaven, and hell exist. The nature of those, a lot of that is theological opinion. (laughs) So affirm they exist, but the nature of heaven and what it's like, the nature of hell, hell does have some, they both, heaven and hell both have some scriptural backing, like hell is eternal in the Bible. But other than that, it's all up to theological opinion. And again, theological opinion is good, and we should listen to it. But we should know it's theological opinion. Then the second part of purgatory. So first we have things like duration and who goes to purgatory and for how long. And the second is what it's like. And a lot of that comes from what's called private revelation, which is saints who had visions, which again is an opinion that we do not necessarily have to ring true. Therefore, I find that this concept of purgatory has been deemed kind of old school. It's this old school Catholic belief. But if we strip away some of this old school theological opinion, which by the way, I find most of the theological opinion totally good and fine. Aquinas, which is the main theological opinion of of the Catholic Church right now in purgatory, I I think it's beautiful. But if we strip some of that away and we, we get rid of, you know, Catherine of Genoa having seen her, you know, past nuns burning in purgatory, begging for prayers. If you look past all of this, the concept of purgatory is beautiful. It's just the state in which we are purified before we meet the Father. It's a state of mercy. It's a state of a second chance. And it's very powerful. It's very lovely. It's very hopeful. For many reasons. And in those many reasons, I I get into all of those reasons on my three-part series on Patreon, which I'll share some clips today. But it's very powerful. It's very lovely, and it also brings forth this thing we overlook, which is theological opinion. What is theological opinion and what is not? And we're going to get into some questions later about belief and what we can and cannot believe and all of that that I think are good. But that's been on my mind. It's been on my mind, too, for the spiritual aspects. You might be familiar with some of the folklore surrounding souls in purgatory, anima sola, the lonely soul, souls that if we pray for them once they enter the kingdom, they will 
help us. They will pray for us 10 times more now that they are closer to God. All of these are beautiful, and all of these have been affirmed by many saints. But I also think that as Catholics who believe in a soul that goes to another place, who believes in spirits, just as I pray for you, who I'm assuming have a body, and I'm assuming are listening from earth, just as I pray for you, that soul still exists in purgatory. That soul still exists in heaven. Therefore, just as my prayers for you right now hopefully bring you closer to God on earth, and I don't necessarily mean a conversion. I mean a quality of life. I mean a healing. I mean anything that can bring you closer to happiness and thus closer to God. I pray for that for you here on earth. Similarly, more literally now, I'm praying that for the souls in purgatory who are on this marathon towards God and they can see him. They're almost there. And our prayers are the cheers from the sidelines that help them cross that finish line. There's such a rich tradition, and I think purgatory is so inherently Catholic. There's so much mysticism. There's so much lore. It's a beautiful thing. So that has been on my mind quite a bit, as well as the theological opinion stuff I just mentioned. And then the theological opinion stuff I just mentioned goes into something else that's been on my mind, and that's this obsession. And this has been something that we've seen for centuries. I've talked about this ad nauseum before, but it's just this obsession with intellectualism, of scholasticism, of what makes you a Christian or a Catholic is not necessarily your heart or not necessarily becoming a living icon of God's love, but rather believing in the right things, as if when we go to heaven, God is going to give us a multiple choice test. As if when we go to heaven, we will look face to face with God and he is going to ask us, well, W, did you use the right analogies when you explain the Trinity? <laughs> Were your views Pelagian or semi-Pelagian? I doubt that. I think God will look at me and say, were you a living icon of my love? Did you reveal my love to others through your actions? Did you come to me in prayer? And most of all, he will ask me, do I know you and do you know me? Again, it is not to say the intellectual and theological traditions are bad or wrong. If you follow my podcast, I've done almost 20 episodes this season on mystical theology. Rather, what I'm saying is theology and the intellectual tradition are not meant for us to be put on trial as if this is a rehash of the Spanish Inquisition. Rather, theology is meant to be a tool that brings us closer to God, is a tool that allows us to understand God more fully and grow closer to him through that. And thus, sadly, especially in the West, but all over, we approach God too intellectually. Yes, I believe. I believe. I believe in these things. But it takes more than belief, does it not? It takes more than faith, does it not? Our hearts must be moved and we must be transformed. All right, so as promised, as alluded to, before we get into these questions before we open up the lines, I do want to share 
a piece, a portion of one of the Purgatory bonus episodes. You will find episodes like this on Patreon. You will find many things on Patreon. You will find an Office of the Dead. An Office is essentially a daily prayer book. Those are for the souls in Purgatory. Recently did an Office of the Sacred Heart, which are Latin and English prayers for the Sacred Heart of Christ. I have an after-show episode on nearly every episode we're doing from this point on. There's a PDF of novenas. There's PDFs for uh, St. Hildegard's Herbal Cures. There's also a monthly gift tier where you get a monthly gift each month. This month, um, the patrons are getting a Holy Face medal alongside a prayer card of the Holy Face. Also did a series on the Holy Face in that devotion. So plenty of stuff on Patreon. Please support my work. Through that, if you deem fit and are interested, it would mean a lot. So, all the things I said on Purgatory earlier are why my heart has been on fire about this topic. So I'd like to share a brief clip from one of the episodes, one of the Patreon episodes that we did on Purgatory. I hope you enjoy. And then after that, we'll open up the lines. But regardless, they they need our prayers, and God wants us to pray for them, and that is biblical. So we pray for them. But let's really talk about why we pray for these souls. So, of course, we are to believe that our prayers can help them. But to understand why and how our prayers help them, we first must understand the what's often or sometimes called the divine economy of grace, sometimes called the divine economy of salvation. The word economy kind of throws me off at least. I prefer ecosystem, an ecosystem of grace. And here's how that works. So there is the what is called the church militant. I hate that term because today traditionalists hear church militant and they think, oh, this means war. This means going out and converting everyone by force. This means fighting the devil and fighting the Protestants or whatever. No, militant just means a group, <laughs> a, a team. So us on earth, we are the church militant. And when I say the church militant, I just mean all people. Of course, some may define that as Christians. Some may define that as Catholics, but some will define church as being a group of believers. Then we have the church triumphant. These are the people who have entered the kingdom of heaven. In other words, saints, because remember, anyone who is in heaven is considered a saint. Then you have what is called the church suffering. It's kind of a dark term, right? But we are su- they are suffering because they are not yet to God, but they are also grieving what they used to have here on earth. That's also a little bit of a theological opinion on what they're feeling. But they're in that middle ground, and thus they are called the church suffering. These are the souls that are in purgatory. And this is all part of the mystical body of Christ, in which I feel is is kind of overlooked. But it's a key component to Catholic and Christian thought. Because it, but it, what we forget, though, is it includes the spiritual and the temporal realm. So yes, you and I are praying for one another, and we are praying for one another so that our hearts will open, that we will be more receptive to love, but also to draw closer to God. But then we also pray to the saints, so the saints can 
assist God in hearing our prayers. And yes, we can go straight to God too, totally fine. But the role of saints is, is part of that church triumphant, part of that mystical body. So we have this economy of grace, and it's kind of like this. You and I here on earth, we pray for one another. In this, we use intercessory prayer. We call upon the angels, the saints, Mary, the Trinity, to help one another out. And thus, asking God to give graces to those we are moved to pray for opens our hearts as well. Similarly, in heaven, the saints are moved by our prayers in what we may be going through, and thus they pray for us too in heaven, asking God to assist us. So it's kind of this cosmic prayer group. But of course, what is our job? What is our role? When we are praying for one another, we want the people we pray for to draw closer to God, right? And I'm using that abstractly on purpose because, yes, that could mean I hope that this person finds God in their life. However, I pray for this person's healing, and they are healed. Now they are more happy, and in that happiness, they can draw closer to God. I pray for this person's financial troubles because when they are financially secure, they may be in a better position to feel God's graces. So even when I'm not directly praying that this person may see God or whatever, I'm still praying that they will, right? So that's a spiritual drawing towards God. But what about the souls in purgatory? So first off, God moves us to pray, not because God's mind changes, but he wants us to be moved. He wants our heart to be open. In the divine plan, he has written that our hearts will be moved to pray for this person. And thus, he's asking us to also pray for those who have gone, that our hearts will be open to them too. So just like I pray for others that they may draw closer to God in some way, now I am literally, physically, praying that these souls in purgatory can draw closer to God, that they can be consoled that I am thinking of them, that you are thinking of them, that we are thinking of them, consoled that their time away from God is lessened, that their journey and purification is more comfortable. All right, welcome back to The Lord's Line. I hope you've enjoyed that. And for more, please check out the Patreon. All right, so we are now going to open line up for callers. I'm very excited. If you are interested in dialing in, first dibs go to Patreon patrons, and usually I open it up to everyone on social media as well. So the first caller is Hillary. Hillary, you are on the line. Hi, W. I know in the past you've talked a lot and have done a podcast on comparing Our Lady of Sorrows um, with Santa Muerta and that, that dark, powerful energy. I was hoping that you could speak a little bit more on this in relation to a Marian consecration. Um, would this be able to be focused on Our Lady of Sorrows or, and especially if you're not a Catholic, is, is there a specific way to do this um, if you're not a Catholic and perhaps you want to focus more on the Our Lady of Sorrows aspect? Um, love everything you do and thank you so much. 
Thank you for the question. So let's provide some context for listeners. So I have spoken on Santa Muerte before, and I have made some comparisons to Our Lady of Sorrows. Now, what was the context of that? The context of that is, I feel as if many people flock to this image and idea and concept of Santa Muerte because they feel it's different and they feel it's darker and quite honestly, they feel it's edgy. Now, I said some people. Of course, others have a familial or ancestral tie, but I feel like many people look at Christianity through rose-colored glasses, through a very, what I call a Sunday school lens where everything is sunshine and rainbows. And thus, they do not see Mary as a figure that can relate to darkness or pain. Even more bafflingly, that's a word, I hear many people are drawn towards Santa Muerte because they are drawn towards focusing on the death realm, focusing on impermeance, focusing on darkness. And that confuses me. I understand, but it confuses me because Catholicism is full of death. I mean, look at the relics of the saints, right? Look at the purgatory stuff we just mentioned. Momento mori, this idea of remembering our death is a Catholic ideal. You have memento mori rosaries. You have all of these saints who are pictured with skulls, St. Clair, Mary Magdalene, Francis, Jerome, so on and so forth. So Catholicism is, is actually rooted in this remembrance of death. And I feel like many people flock to this goddess of death because they don't see that in Catholicism, but it's, it's very rampant there. I've also spoken about Santa Muerte under the lens of Santa Muerte from what one of the origin stories that I'm aware of is that her devotion came about by people who during that time were not allowed in the church due to their class. Therefore, they resulted in praying to this figure of Santa Muerte almost as a stand-in for Mary. And yes, I am glossing over a lot of nuance there. So now, living in a country in which you can certainly pray to Mary and go inside of a church, I think if you're going from it from that view, it's kind of an antiquated concept. Also, this, this idea of Santa Muerte as darkness and suffering. And as you have pointed out, Hillary, Our Lady of Sorrows is the penultimate figure of suffering in Catholicism. She can understand our suffering and our sorrows. And this also is reflected in Christ, who allowed God to turn his face from his son so that God would not turn his face from us. This was a gesture of love, not a gesture of spite. So this suffering and darkness is very much a Catholic thing. Catholics believe in redemptive suffering, that if we suffer through something with love and we suffer through something and offer that pain up to God, then God will remove the pain from someone else. Or, even more basic, on a basic level, if we are suffering, we ask God to use this suffering to glorify us, to bring us closer to him in spirit. So suffering is all there, and I don't feel the need to bring in extra figures. But again, many people have been taught 
this hunky-dory, love-and-light version of Christianity. Look at the saints, right? The saints suffered. St. Francis of Assisi was a prisoner of war who was tortured in prison, who had PTSD, who then lived in squalor, might have caught leprosy, and yet he's depicted, rightfully so, but he's depicted as this hippie saint who, who loves birds and deer, and he does. But there's a darker aspect of it. Look at all the martyrs. There's this darkness that I feel we have overlooked, and if we overlook the darkness, we'll never know how to deal with it if we overlook that dark night of the senses and of the soul. All right, so what you're asking, though, is a consecration to Our Lady of Sorrows. Sure, you absolutely can do that. So what is a consecration? There are people who look at consecrations much more mystically than I do, who look at it in a lens of almost magic, which I do not. And why don't I do that? I don't do that because if I were to tell you that you have to follow a certain ritual to a T for Mary to help you, that would make Mary seem kind of rude. So a consecration has various meanings. Um, I think people see Marian consecrations and they see it as a very specific ritual brought upon by the church on how to make a vow to Mary. And unless you are entering a religious order, um, whether that's third order or full-on religious, that doesn't exist. Consecrations are merely a repetitive prayer that you say over a series of time. And there are consecrations that have been written by saints and written by lay people and written by priests, and they have been used for hundreds of years. And I think that there's a lot of power behind those rituals because they've been used for so long. But we can all create our own consecration simply by saying a series of prayers and making a series of promises for a period of time. So how can one go about this for Our Lady of Sorrows? One could simply look into a Marian consecration written by St. Alphonsus Liguori or many of the other ones in there, but add something with the sorrowful mysteries. So maybe do the seven sorrows chaplet every day throughout the consecration, which could be 30, 60, 45 days. Or just do a month long Our Lady of Sorrows novena and have promises that you make during that session and also your petitions. Now, is there anything you should know if you're not a Catholic. No, no. Um, Mary wants you to go to her. Christ wants you to go to Mary. God wants Christ to will you to go to Mary so you can go to God. The Holy Spirit is moving you to go to Mary right now. That's why you're asking me this question. So you don't have to know anything. Um, it would be silly if... Mary only wanted Catholics to go to her. So make that promise. Of course, yes, if you want to make a real good promise to Mary, become Catholic. <laughs> but I won't say that Mary will not answer your prayers because you're not Catholic and you cannot make a promise to Mary because you're not Catholic. You certainly should. So to answer your question, which was a very simple question, which I just rambled on about, Look into your, your traditional Marian consecration and tweak that to be about Our Lady of Sorrows by adding something 
from her spirituality within that, which probably is going to be the Seven Sorrows Chaplet or focusing on the Sorrowful Mysteries. And or I would just do some kind of novena, whether a 30-day novena or a 60-day novena, and dedicate that to her and make promises to her through that. And also just make promises overall, right? I think we get caught up on terms like offerings and we approach offerings in Christianity and Catholicism as the pagans did. And I think that that's okay in some instances because if we worked hard for a crop and we say, God, this is for you, I think that's fine. That's what we do in the mass. That's what used to be done in the mass. Instead of giving alms, instead of passing around the collection plate, you brought forth your livestock or your grain. I think that's fine. I think that's beautiful. But the best offering is doing something that will bring you closer to God. And that includes serving others because thus you are also serving God's children. So I hope this was helpful. And may the blessed, beautiful mother keep you safe. Thanks for your question. All right. This next question comes from Davina. Davina, thank you for dialing in. What's your question? Hey, W. Uh, I was having trouble figuring out the wording on my questions, so I thought I'd keep it simple um, for now and kind of give you an opportunity to hop on your soapbox. So my question is, what is a concept or a belief that you think isn't really talked about enough when it comes to deconstruction? Yeah, thanks for this. This is, this is all a soapbox, I suppose. And I thank you all for thinking my soapbox is interesting and worth listening to. Uh, so the main thing that I think is overlooked when it comes to deconstructing is what I mentioned earlier. What is theological opinion? And this is more for Catholicism. What is theological opinion and what is doctrine or dogmatic? Um, I feel like a lot of people have issue with um, teachings of the church that more so are in line with what could be considered theological opinion rather than dogma. Um more or less, I think some of that at least, um, when people see God a certain way or see heaven and hell a certain way or see things like sin a certain way, I think it's because they are approaching those from certain rigid theological opinions, which are not the only way to approach those topics. Um, other things, I think the concept of deconstruction overall, at least as a Catholic, is fascinating because growing up, we were encouraged to do what people are calling deconstruction. And I know deconstruction is more of an evangelical thing, but my catechism classes that I had as a teen were centered on asking questions and picking apart things. So why are things this way? And what happened there is how the, the theological opinion stuff came about, right? Like, oh, I don't understand this. Well, first off, we were reading from the catechism, which is pretty much free, of various theological opinion, by the way. Uh, but, you know, we would talk about, oh, well, I heard this about, you know, who goes to heaven and, and this and that. And, you know, our, our priests, uh, we even had the bishop come in once, would, would explain, well, that is one way of looking at it here or others. So I think just this concept of deconstruction is fascinating because, to me, deconstructing something has always been part of the faith. You just have to reconstruct it as well. And the other, I kind of already went on that soapbox, is I feel like we are all very very too much caught up on 
an intellectual grasp of God rather than a transformation of heart. Moreover, I think one of the largest areas of deconstruction that I urge people to have, and I urge them cautiously to, to find good materials, is the concept of atonement, the concept, this belief of why Christ died for us and how Christ died for us. And again, this is theological opinion because even in the Catholic Church, there are about four or five quote-unquote approved ways of looking at why and how Christ died for us, and they can all mesh together as well. But I think atonement is, is a very important thing to look at because that's where we start getting into these misconceptions of, oh, Christ had to die for us because God was vindictive, so he made his son suffer to scare us. Um, however, if, if you look at all of salvation history and you see this love story taking place, this love story of God making man in his image, and what does that mean? It means that we are supposed to be living icons of God's love, that our actions reveal God's love to others, but selfishness, which you could call the fall, happened, and thus we become centered on ego, centered on self, and we move further away from being that image. Various things happen from there. The prophets come and they serve as stand-ins for God in many ways. Things like Abraham being commanded to kill his son. People freak out about that, right? But what does that mean? What is that telling people about the nature of God? And that was very simple in that moment. God was using Abraham to say, I do not require child sacrifices like the other gods. Or look at Hosea who was forced to marry the unfaithful woman. This woman would cheat on him and leave, but he was required to always love her unconditionally, and he would always welcome her back. And again, he was being a stand-in for God, because this is how God is. When we are unfaithful, he still welcomes us back. And there was these processes of atonement that would occur, but for the ultimate process to occur, Christ would have to, God would have to send Christ, who would allow God to turn his face away and thus reveal this mercy. And then you have elements of the mystical body of Christ, which now we all are supposed to reveal God's mercy through our actions. So I think that area is one that needs more discussion. There is a book by Margaret Turek called Atonement, and she pulls from Pope Benedict, Hans Urs von Balthasar, and John Paul II and many others, and I think that's a really beautiful um, kind of description of atonement. So that's another kind of semi-soapbox that I've been wanting to do content on it, but it's just such a big topic, and I am, I'm, that's, that's above me um, and above my intellect. But I think that area is one I recommend people look, because you've li likely been taught about atonement when you were a child, and that's a hard thing to teach a kid or you've been taught it as an adult in just a very poor way, frankly, uh, because that's something that's like the Eucharist, right? Like to understand the Eucharist, you have to truly understand the Jewish rituals of Passover and what that means. You also have to understand the exodus of Moses and how they were awaiting a new exodus but to a new plane of existence. I did tackle that in my Eucharist episode, and it's similar to atonement, to understand atonement and why Christ died for us. You have to understand how God was merciful in the Old Testament 
which many people do not see. And you have to understand all of salvation history and how it's a love story and how it plays into us becoming a member of this mystical body. And I think that's often overlooked. But I think the biggest is just seeing people deconstruct and they're deconstructing like the the most flawed theological evangelical basic concept I've ever seen. Like they're they're just deconstructing something that is the most watered down version of God possible, um, which is a far cry from what the church fathers taught, which the early Christians thought of God. It, it's a very watered-down version. So, of course, you can deconstruct that, and you need to deconstruct that all you want. You can tear that apart all you want because it's you're deconstructing a, a very limited view of God, in my opinion. So look at all of the other sources. Look at what other people have said about those topics uh, because there is a wealth of theological opinion out there. Thank you for that question. And the next question is from Megan. Megan, thank you. You're on the line. Hi, Davi. I'll try to make this quick. Um, thank you for the opportunity. I have two questions. One, um, what is your view on the Virgen de Guadalupe being not only um, a version of Mary, but being a goddess also of the indigenous people that she appeared to? Um, I know this is something that I've heard in witchier circles, and I'm wondering if that's at all possible. Um, and the second would be ancestral veneration. Um, Towards this time of the year, it's very popular. Is it possible to do this from a Catholic point of view? Um, there are ancestors that I would like to connect with that I've never met. Um, I don't really have much collateral as far as knowing many of my ancestors and who they were. Um, so yeah, I'm just wondering if there's any ancestral work that would be, I guess, acceptable biblically or to God. Yeah, thanks for asking. So I have covered this in my Our Lady of Guadalupe episode. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly how I phrased it then. Do I think that it is a possibility? Sure, I do. In fact, uh, there was concern by other members of the Catholic Church that uh, these people were still just worshiping an indigenous goddess, just now they were calling it a Marian apparition. So it actually took time for the Catholic Church, certain people of the Catholic Church, to accept this. Uh, do I think it is possible? I don't know. Here's what I do know. It's also possible that, yes, a Marian apparition occurred. However, there were people who still wanted to revere their goddess and they knew that during a time of Catholic control of the area, that that was forbidden, and thus they still went to this version of Mary and secretly prayed to their goddesses. So absolutely, I, th I think that's that's possibility for sure. Um, now do now let's let's just let's just go down the the scrupulosity train in our mind right let's go down how this could be problematic let's say that it's true and hundreds of years ago um a goddess tricked us into praying to her by saying she was mary and she wasn't let's say that's true so if you're going to her if you're going to this this image in the story of mary and you are praying to mary I think that prayer is still going to go to Mary, right? <laughs> because that is what's in our heart and that's what's in our mind. You know, it's it's not going to be a gotcha moment. 
Um, so yeah, I, I think there was definitely syncretism there. Um, there was probably syncretism in a lot of the artwork as well. Um, I know for sure there was things like um, the horns at the bottom, things like, um, I, I think, yes, stepping on the head of the snake predates Guadalupe, but there's also some other snake imagery, I think, that was in some of the earlier uh, versions of the painting. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's possible, but I, I think that now it's pretty certain that that is a title of Mary that we use rather than a goddess. I love your second question because again, here, here we are. Here we are in this wonderful moment in Catholicism, in this, this, these, these spiritual trends that go about online, right? Like ancestral veneration, it sounds so magical. It sounds so esoteric. It sounds so mystical and mysterious, right? Just like I see many people doing a, a folk candle prayer to St. Michael, and they're just doing a no Catholic novena, right? Like, like we use this terminology to make things seem like they're not Catholic. And ancestral veneration is, is such a fun term, because what does that mean? It means you are praying to your relatives who have passed on, the souls of your relatives who have passed on. Uh, this is a Catholic thing. We've discussed that already in this episode when we talked about praying to the souls in purgatory. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Ancestral veneration, the day of the dead, all of that, that is a, that's a Catholic thing. So Catholics absolutely venerate our ancestors. Now, are there elements that, that might be fringe, that maybe some people would say that's not a traditional way of going about it? You know, maybe you you leave something on your in front of a picture of, of your departed loved one because let's say they loved M&Ms, so you leave an M&M bag of M&Ms up there on the anniversary of their death. Like, is that a common thing across the board? No. Is there anything wrong with that? No. <laughs> so, yeah, and so, is, so yeah, ancestral veneration is is that's Catholicism. All Souls Day um, is a day in the church in which we pray for all souls. And usually there's a special place for the souls of our relatives. And we pray to them for what I discussed earlier, because when they are in heaven, they can pray for us too. In the Catholic Church, we have memorial masses for our loved ones. We say a mass in honor of someone who has departed from us to aid their journey into heaven. And if they are in heaven, our prayers are said to only uplift them more and increase their closeness to God even more in heaven. So on the anniversary of deaths, we are called to do that. We are called to go and, and visit them in the cemetery and say a prayer for them while we visit the cemetery. So yes, ancestral veneration is, is one of those terms that we see as magical and mystical, but that is an inherently Catholic thing. So how can you go about it? Um, I know you're a member of the Patreon, um, so... I've been sharing prayers. You can go about that soon. I will be sharing on the Patreon the Office of the Dead, which is a, a daily prayer you can do to venerate souls who have passed on. I would recommend that. You can simply pray one of the many prayers out there. I like St. Alphonsus Liguori's Prayer for the Souls in Purgatory. Of course, the St. Gertrude, the Great Prayer is common. Pray those for these departed souls. Um, since I kind of touched on folksy stuff, yes, there are... Again, again, we're using terms here, right? We're using terms. 
right? So, so let me say this in two ways. If you want to set up an ancestral altar with pictures of your departed loved ones and put offerings in front of them, you can. That probably, that probably might have frightened some of you more traditional Catholics. So let me rephrase that. To show you that it's just words we're using here, if you would like to put a picture of your departed loved ones in a place in your home and put mementos on the table to remind you of them, feel free. Those are the same two things I just said, but one sounds much more mystical. So absolutely, you can do that as well if you want to put images of loved ones on tables or an altar, your prayer corner, to remember them and to pray for them. It's, it's a visual tool to help you in prayer. You can do that as well. Um, but yeah, this is a very Catholic thing. And I love that you asked that because it's, it's, one of those, it's one of those terms I hear and I laugh because it sounds so otherworldly, but it's a key part of Catholic um, practice. And yes, there are more what you could consider folk Catholic traditions done by traditional Catholics. Folk Catholic traditions done by traditional Catholics because folk Catholicism is usually done by people who just call themselves Catholics. That do incorporate some other things like maybe um, some of the altar type stuff I mentioned before or they might you know, have their own customs in certain parts of the world like, like um, Day of the Dead. So there's some of that too, but the most basic way to go about this is just to say prayers, the office of the dead, um, some of these purgatory prayers um, that I've been sharing on Patreon that are easily found online with a Google search. Um, so yeah, this and this is a great thing, and it's really rewarding. I, I really, I've been trying to do a, um, a day on Fridays. I've been trying to pray for the souls in purgatory by doing the office of the dead, um, dedicating a divine mercy chaplet to them is another good one. Uh, but it's a very rewarding thing. And yes, there's this pious selfishness, and I've talked about this on Patreon, um, of when you, you know, when they, when they enter the kingdom, they will pray for you even more. But I'm sure you have relatives who are already in heaven, um, but you still pray for them. You still pray for them because their, their closeness to God can even increase there, or just that you're thinking of them and that you love them. And they will repay those prayers by praying for you in return. So thank you. Thank you for the question. All right. Now our final caller is Angelica. Thanks for calling. Hey, W. Quick question. Recently, my friend accidentally broke the cross on my rosary. Is it all right to repair it and continue praying with it? I know the question may be a little silly, but I'm, I'm new to this. Thank you very much for your work. Thank you for the podcast. I hope you're well. Thank you. Thanks for your question. Uh, no, it's not a silly question at all. It's it's a sweet question. Um, you can absolutely repair it and keep praying with it. Um, I was on live recently, and not recently, it was a while ago, but I was on live, on Instagram live, praying the rosary, and my rosary broke while I was praying it. So I just bent it back in place. Um, a beautiful rosary, a friend made it for me. So it was handmade. So just clipped it on back in. I have a St. Michael statue that my cat knocked off of my altar that is missing half of his hand. Like it's, it's totally fine. Um, so let's talk about this, though. Let's talk about superstition. Let's talk about getting rid of sacramentals. So let's say that your rosary broke into a million pieces uh, because you broke it accidentally or your friend did or whatever, but it was broken on accident. How would you get rid of it? How would you dispose of it? Now, if this, this is considered a sacramental, so there is a proper way of disposing of it, which would be to bury it 
technically um, with holy water. Some things, some literature would say to, to burn some sacramentals, but I would, I would say bury it with holy water. Now, because of that, many people are, are thinking that if they have, and that's kind of an old school belief, by the way. So many people think, oh, well, that must mean that a broken sacramental is bad luck, and if I don't, or if I just throw it away, then that's going to upset God, right? Uh, because I'm throwing away or disposing of something improperly. But that's not the way to look at it. Rather, we are, the respect and reverence is coming for us, and it is for us. It is not for God, right? So what I mean by that is us breaking a statue and deciding to bury it uh, with holy water in our backyard, in our garden. Um, that is, that is a, an act of love on our part, rather than a command from God that we do this correctly, um, it's just a way of showing respect. So you could also throw something in the garbage respectfully by saying a prayer before you do it. Um, but I get that a lot too. I get, I get a lot of, you know, um, this, this statue broke while I was praying. This St. Peter, St. Michael, St. Anthony, what have you, statue broke while I was praying. Does that mean that, you know, these saints are going to come and burn my house down? Absolutely not. Why would... Why would God do that? <laughs> Why would God curse you because the statue that you got and were, was praying with broke? Um, it's, it's this, um, we have a lot of superstition in our minds. And it's not just the, the folksy folks out there. Um, it's in the traditional spaces as well, right? You know, we're disrespecting God if we take the Eucharist in our hands rather than the mouth. We're... we're disrespecting God if we lift up our hands during the Our Father. Like, you know, there's there's so much of this. Or, or even certain things around sin and certain things about um, obligations and whatnot. You know, we view it very black and white, and that turns God into this legalistic trickster who is waiting to catch you slipping. That's not how God is. So, yeah, if you break a rosary, if you break a statue... You can throw it away, say a little prayer and do it. You can bury it. Uh, but that is for us. That is for us. That is a sign of love coming from us rather than a demand of God that we do something or he will be upset. Uh, it's beautiful that you're praying it so much that you broke it. That means you're using it, which is a beautiful thing. Thanks for the question. All right. So that wraps up our dial-in questions. I do have questions that were submitted through Patreon and Discord, as well as some on Instagram. We will get to that. But first, let's do a clip from our recent series on St. John of the Cross. If you haven't heard it, if you've listened, I hope you enjoy this section again. Just a brief clip, and then we'll get into our written-in questions. Enjoy. The iron bars on the window were hot to the touch, and yet John had to touch them. Wrapping his fingers around the scorching iron, searing his skin, though he still gripped the bars tighter. While his flesh burned, his head rested upon the cool stone wall as he silently prayed, Out of the depths I cry to thee, O Lord. Hear my voice. Let my words be thy supplication. After repeating the psalm, he let go. His skin 
still sticking to the metal, and he slumped down in his cell, weak, trembling. His cell was so narrow that he could not even lie down, so he had to sleep standing up. He prayed, crouching. His entire body ached, and his soul was so dark. John was forced into the cell by his own brothers, orders from their superiors. John was wanting too many reforms, the monk said, so they revolted. And now he was a prisoner, and the only thing he truly loved, the church. He stayed there all day, cramped, standing. He was only fed stale bread and water, if he was even fed at all. So there he stands, his hands still stinging, but this pain seemed to take away the focus from the pain he felt in his legs and his knees and his neck. He then hears keys jingling and he swiftly feels hands on his arms and back, and he's slowly escorted to the courtyard. The sun so bright it blinds him, but for a moment he's happy that he can stretch his legs, that is, until he's forced down on his knees, whipped and lashed, as his own brothers repeat the miserere. Have mercy on me, God, in your kindness, and your compassion blot out my offense. Oh, wash me more and more from my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. The prayer goes on, being lashed at every pause. And that night, crouched in his cell, with only the moonlight on his face and the cold stone on his back, John opened his mouth, and much like the psalms he had been praying, outpoured this poetry from the depths of his soul, from the pits of despair, in the middle of his own personal hell, he cried, Where have you hidden, O Lord? You wounded me and left me moaning. Weeks went by until one night he heard a creaking. Who could it be? and what was going to happen to him at this hour. But to his surprise, the door opened and no one was there. Was it an angel, like the one who freed St. Peter from his prison? Too weak to walk because his muscles were atrophied, John collapsed onto his knees. He peeked out the door and he saw no one. But across the hall, he noticed the fluttering shutters of a window. So he crawled, unsure if it was a trap, but he was willing to risk anything now. So he drug himself to the window, propping himself up on the ledge, and he faced it. The cool wind on his face, no idea how hard or long the fall was going to be. But knowing he did not want to die a prisoner, he jumped, he dove right out. And miraculously, he landed in a pile of brush. Whether it was God or adrenaline or God-given adrenaline, John was then able to stand and run painfully off the grounds. He ran through the night until he reached a local convent run by his spiritual mother, Teresa. 
The last thing he remembered was seeing the double doors before collapsing and blacking out. And then he awoke to four nuns tending to his wounds, ensuring that he was safe. And while they treated his physical wounds, John would go on to teach us all about a more profound wound, a wound that runs so deep, so deep that it touches our soul, a wound that goes beyond words, a wound that comes from the depth, a wound that is filled with love, a wound that is filled with yearning, the wound of God, the wound of love. This is another episode of St. Anthony's Tongue, and this is St. John of the Cross. All right, welcome back, and thank you for hanging out with me now for about an hour. I know last Lord's Line, I think it was over two hours, which was ridiculous, but it's one of my most listened episodes, so apparently you guys are okay with me rambling, which is wild to me. I don't know if I would listen to me ramble, but I appreciate you and all of your support. All right, so let's jump into... Written in questions, this first one comes from Mark, who submitted this via Discord. Uh, the first question, and I'm, I have it in front of me, but I'm going to paraphrase it. Uh, I did a Patreon post um, on spiritual tips from Blessed Francis Xavier Silos, and one of his recommendations was doing a novena before all major feast days. Mark wants to know if there's a list of feasts, major feasts online somewhere. Absolutely. You can find them pretty easily by just searching major Catholic feasts. Um, but you might have to do some digging around to find um, some of the more intricate ones that you might enjoy. Um, you know, things like the Assumption of Mary, things like the Birth of Mary. These are Holy Days of Obligation, but sometimes they, they're not in the lists of things. Uh, but yeah, most of the, the major feast days you're probably already aware of, regardless, things like, you know, the, the incarnation of the birth of Christ, uh, and all of the passion ones. But yeah, these are pretty easily found online. But the second question that Mark has is an interesting one. He recently got a Catholic Bible, and it says a partial indulgence is granted to the Christian faithful who read sacred scripture with a veneration due God's word as a form of spiritual reading. The indulgence will be a plenary indulgence. When such reading is done for at least one half hour, can you talk a little about indulgences? I've seen the term in a few places, but haven't had it explained to me. Thanks so much. I really appreciate all you do with the podcast and community. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate you being part of the community. So let's talk about indulgences. So indulgences are really interesting. Um, of course, many people just hear indulgence and they think that was the thing that happened around the Reformation area, Reformation era where the Catholic Church was selling tickets to heaven, essentially. There's a little bit more to it than that. Uh, but indulgences are still a thing. Um, so an indulgence is kind of like this. Let's say I'm going to use like a very common analogy. So if you've heard this a million times, listeners, I apologize. So let's say you broke a window and your father forgives you, right? So... Being forget so breaking the window would technically be the sin, right? Being forgiven would be the absolution. However, you still need to clean up that window. You still need to repair the window. You need to sweep up the mess and clean it and repair it. So sweeping up the mess and repairing it would be the penance that we are given uh, by the priest to make things right. 
So we are forgiven, but we still have to change our behavior. We still have to do things to purify us, to make us closer to God once more, to, to heal that distance we have caused by sin. So an indulgence is an act that cleanses us from the spiritual blockages caused by sin, essentially. So this is often framed in terms of like purgatory and 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 I think people get turned off by it because usually, usually they see it as a punishment, but see it as this, it's removing a spiritual blockage caused by the effects of sin. So this would occur, we can do it now, and it can benefit us now. Um, so when we do die, hopefully we are purified because we do, do indulgence, we go to confession, we do penance. Thus, our time in purgatory will hopefully be shortened because we have cleansed ourselves from those spiritual blockages and we need less purification. So a full and um, a full plenary indulgence would be it removes all um, of of the uh, that gunk, the spiritual blockages, the, the punishments of sin, if you want to use the some harsh terminology. Um, so there's partial and plenary. Plenary is full. Partial is what it says is partial. So spiritual reading of the Bible, by the way, I think many people don't know what that means. That probably means Lexio Divina. Uh, meditation, actually reflecting on the word. So doing that for half an hour to a day essentially will remo remove spiritual blockages that will pay off here and in the afterlife. Um, Esra on Discord, um, since you're on Discord and you asked me this, Mark, uh, Esra did a really good explanation on sin and penance and I believe he described, he used like a stain analogy, like you, sp you spill mustard on your shirt, right? Like being forgiven is, is cleaning the mustard off, but there's still a stain you have to get out. And that's penance and that's indulgence. So penance and indulgence can, can be used kind of in the same way, but usually a penance is given by a priest, indulgence is given by the church, but they are both used to remove the, the ickiness, the blockages, the stains of sin. And there's plenty of them. There's, of course, as you saw, there's reading the, the Bible for half an hour. There's uh, the rosary comes with one. Um, also, during November, if you go and pray in a graveyard, <laughs> you get an indulgence. You're going to see old ones, pre-Vatican II indulgences that have days by them. Like this is a 500 days indulgence. And there's a misconception there. People think that that means... This means you get 500 days off of purgatory, but that's not what it meant at all. Uh, these were, uh, you have to do a penance for 500 days or whatever. So uh, if you read you know, your Bible for 500 days, then you'll get the indulgence. That was removed um, in one of the councils. So that's old terminology, but it's still there. So if you see days by it, um, the church doesn't use the days anymore. But it's a really beautiful thing, just seeing, again, seeing sin as this blockage and seeing um, indulgence and penance as a way to remove those spiritual blockages. Thanks for your question, Mark. All right, so the next question comes from Patreon. It's from Angela. I would really enjoy hearing your opinions on the Catholic Church's restrictions regarding who can participate in the Sacrament of Holy Communion. For instance, someone who is divorced and remarried but hasn't had the first marriage annulled cannot participate. Someone with an unconfessed grave sin, living with someone in an unmarried state, LGBTQ lifestyle, engaging in premarital sex, etc., etc., etc. Do you believe the church has a right to restrict anyone's access to the Eucharist? If yes, why? If no, why not? 
Along those lines, when I go to Mass, I can't help but notice the lines to receive the Eucharist are very long, but the lines into the confessionals are not. So it appears that despite the church's restrictions, most are not self-regulating their access to communion. What are your thoughts on this? Thank you so much. I have plenty of thoughts on this. So, you're describing it as restriction, and you're doing that for a good reason, because the church has phrased it as restriction. The church has phrased it as we are banning the Eucharist. That's very unfortunate, because foregoing the Eucharist is not a punishment. Foregoing the Eucharist is a sacrifice that we make to show God we are sorry for the thing that we have done, right? So we say, God, I am sorry for this ill in which I have committed, therefore I am going to refrain from the Eucharist to ask for your forgiveness. However, today it has been framed as a, I am withholding this from you. I am withholding this from you. So overall, though, the Eucharist is a gift. The Eucharist actually does cleanse of, of venial sin. So the Eucharist is a beautiful thing. Do I believe the church has the right to restrict? Of course I do. Of course I do. The church can do what the church wants. It's the church. And the church has rules and regulations, and, and of course they are bound to them. However, I feel as if... Yes, many people are going and getting communion despite engaging in things the church says are wrong. I agree. However, I would wager that if these people went and spoke to a priest and gave their reasoning behind what's going on and why they're doing this, then the priest would likely work with them and they could be advised on what direction they should take. So there, there is a chance in which, you know, the priest can say, okay, well, you know, why you are living with your um, partner and you're not married, okay, this, this might make sense for you right now. You know, let's say they convert, they've been together for 20 years and one of them converted and the other didn't, and, you know, we can't kick her out, right? So... Not everything is black and white in these circumstances. So if you are in one of those areas, you should speak to a priest about what you're going through. But also, sin is not black and white. I just gave you an example of how it's not black and white. There are, are reasons sometimes that we fall into these categories. Intent matters. Circumstances matter. The primacy of conscience matters. In this scenario, I am doing what I have to do. Therefore, it's not as black and white. But I do wish that we saw abstaining from the Eucharist not as a punishment, but as a sacrifice we make for God. So I think a lot of this has to do with, one, our understanding of the Eucharist and how it plays into our spirituality, how abstaining from it is not a punishment, but a sacrifice we make. The second has to do with the lack of the priest being our spiritual father or spiritual director that has gone away, right? Hopefully, the priest will be working with us through these circumstances. And lastly, I think that many of us don't understand sin. We see sin as this checklist that a Santa Claus God keeps from 
getting into heaven, rather something that stops us from communing with him. And in that scenario, something that even is pious, even is good, can be perverted by pride and greed. So things are not black and white. So yes, I think people are not self-regulating the Eucharist and communion, and I hope they are. I don't know. You know, I, I, I hope that they are saying an act of contrition at home. I hope that they are still moving closer to God. It's not my place to judge. But yes, there, there certainly is some, some areas there. On the flip side, I also feel like I, I've had questions before about abstaining from communion for things that are not sinful too. So I think there, there's, there's a mixture there. I think there's a mixture there of people who are also over-scrupulous, who abstain from Eucharist because they think they're in a state of sin because you know they are confused about a theological concept or something. But yes, um, abstaining from the Eucharist is a beautiful thing rather than a punishment. It can be a beautiful symbol of sacrifice. All right, next question comes from La Tatuana on Instagram. Hi, W. I wanted to ask a question for this Q&A. What happens if I don't agree with one of the many dogmas that the church teaches because I understand that the relationship that each believer has with the dogmas is a volitional act, but at the same time it seems that in the church they teach you that you must believe the dogmas or you would be almost committing a heresy. Is that true? Thank you for your time. God bless you. God bless you as well. So first, it's so annoying how often we use the word heresy. For someone to be a heretic, they have to be in a place of power. They have to be a bishop. They have to be a cleric who is teaching at a university level. They have to be a cardinal. They have to be a, a priest with a big platform. A layperson who is believing something incorrectly is not a heretic. They could be misinformed, and maybe in some areas, sometimes, that misinformation may lead you to have a warped view of God or a incorrect view that could lead to negative things in your life that could stop you from having a good relationship with God. But again, as I've said, you believing the nature of God is something that the church might say isn't really accurate. You know, you, you might not be able to explain the Trinity properly. It's not, you're not going to hell, right? Like you just have a, a, an uninformed understanding of a theological concept. Like it's totally fine to do. But we're talking about dogmas here. So there's doctrine, there's theological opinion, and there's dogmas. Dogmas are of the church in which, yes, we must affirm them. So there are various levels of dogma. There is dogma that is infallible, which despite the name infallibility, it means you can disagree with it. Um, usually these come from popes or theologians. And then there is dogma that is what's called divinely inspired. This comes from sacred scripture um, and things of that nature. So things like the Trinity, things like Christ uh, was born, crucified, died, and rose again. And that is from Scripture, so that is divinely inspired. So we must believe in that one. But there actually are dogmas that um, you, can, you can disagree with to some extent. 
But again, here herein lies the trickiness of that of that phrase, right? What does it mean to disagree with? Right? What does it mean to disagree with? To disagree, like are you vehemently denying that Christ was not divine? Okay, that's a problem. But do you have a hard time wrapping your head around the assumption of Mary? That's this a little different. It's a little different. Of course, yes, you should believe that Mary assumed and went to heaven. But if you have a hard time wrapping your head around it, that's okay. You're not, you're not going to hell. You're not going to be excommunicated because you have a hard time wrapping your head around a concept that the church teaches. Period. So it's okay. It's okay to have a hard time believing the perpetual virginity of Mary. All right? Like, yes, that's a dogma. But if you have a hard time believing it, it's totally fine. You're still a Catholic in good standing. Pray that God helps your belief. But also, I think the, the, the dogmatics that we must hold true are the ones that bring us closer to God and closer to Christ. You can totally have trouble with something, spend some time researching it, but no, if, if you have a hard time wrapping your head around something, you're not going to be excommunicated at all nor will you be sent to hell, I promise. So, yeah, essentially there are various types of dogma. Those that are divinely inspired are the ones that we must affirm. Now, I'm saying affirm. I'm not saying believe. I'm saying that I say this is true. That, that doesn't mean that at times we struggle with it. If, if that were true, we'd all be out of the church. I'm saying we must affirm it. And an easy way to see this, an easy way to remember or, or see what we must affirm is the thing we affirm every Sunday, which is the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed, depending on your, your church. I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Those are, those are the dogmas that are the most important. So I hope this was helpful. Thank you for your question. All right, just a few more. Sword Prayers on Instagram writes, Sorry if you've already answered, but how to find a patron saint? So yeah, I've talked about this quite a bit in my podcast. We'll talk about it again. I think we approach patron saints um, like we approach Pokemon, like we approach pagan deities where we want to pray to a certain god of something to get some sort of grace and power. And we also look at them as, you know, this is mine. This is, this is my saint. This is my patron. Mine, mine, mine. That's fine. That's okay. Um, but a saint works alongside us depending on where we are in life, right? So if you are a student, you might call upon St. Catherine of Bologna or St. Thomas Aquinas. Then you become a journalist. So now you call upon St. Francis de Sales, or St. Catherine of Siena, or St. Hildegard, they wrote letters. Uh, then you become a mother. So now you may pray to St. Anne as your patron. So it is perfectly normal for saints to assist us in different times of our lives. So I, I want you to know that, right? There are saints that come and go, or they might stay, depending on where we are in our life. Though, what I recommend is Simply find a saint that speaks to you based on various areas of your life. So maybe it might be your career, or if you're a student, it might be that. 
then maybe you want one for protection, right? To, to help, and then maybe one for healing in your health. So protection, St. Michael, healing, Raphael, or so, Pio, so many. And then you might want one for your family, right? So maybe it's St. It's Joseph. So choose some that, that speak to you, but also simply read the lives and the stories of the saints. What appeals to you? And I'm not too big on following patronages alone, right? Um, you know, I really got into um, St. Benedict, who I still consider a patron. It's okay to have many patrons, by the way. I got into him because I was going through a time in my career where I got a promotion and I needed to create order in my department, and I knew I was going to create enemies. And St. Benedict, what did he do? He created order in his monasteries and almost got killed twice. So I saw that relation with my struggle. And and he is not listed on his patronages. It's not listed. He's the patron saint of those who want to make changes at work and are scared they might make people mad. Like, that's not on his list. But when I read his story, that resonated. So often you're going to read, when you're reading the lives of the saints, and my podcast is a good opportunity for that, um, something's going to speak to you. And then you can go from there, right? You know, and I say it all the time. I, I've already mentioned Francis of Assisi, but Francis of Assisi, you know, people see him, oh, I'm going to pray to him when my, my pet lizard is sick. But St. Francis also struggled with anxiety and PTSD, so he can be someone you go to for that. Uh, but you find this out by really going to their story and spending time with them. There are also patrons, too, that... I personally have never outwardly prayed to, but they have helped formed me, form me spiritually. Uh, Francis de Sales, I would say he is probably my number one patron. I don't really do novenas to him. I don't really pray to him, but I read a lot of his stuff, and I follow his methods of prayer. Same with St. John of the Cross. I, I don't think I've ever done a novena to either of them, but both of their writings and teachings have formed me in a way that I consider them patrons. So I kind of have patrons that I, I do have on my altar that I just kind of include at the end of a prayer session, you know, Saint so-and-so pray for me. But then I have certain saints that I consider patrons, uh, Therese of Lisieux is another, where I might not pray to you, but, but your work and your writings have, have really helped me. So saints come and go, and saints' jobs are to assist us so we can move closer to God. And all saints can do all things, right? Some of them have specialties, but their goal is to help us be closer to God and move closer to God. So they will all be happy to assist you, and they all may show up in your life at different times. Hope that was helpful. Next question, Eclectic Witch asks, how do we know if our prayers are truly answered by God? Well, we must have faith that God hears all of our prayers. But we must surrender to the idea that God knows what is best. Therefore, if we are asking something from our will, if we want something because we want it, we have to trust that it might not be God's will. So sometimes... God may not answer our prayers, but sometimes the unanswered prayer is eventually the answer to the prayer. Sometimes not getting what we want 
will end up being what's best. I remember I was in a very toxic work situation. And I was praying for a new job constantly. Um, I did like a two-week novena. And one day when I was praying, I just got this nudge. I got this nudge that said, your prayers can't be answered, W, because you staying at this job is answering the prayer of someone else. I don't really get messages a lot. Okay, I kind, sometimes I do. But not as clear as this. So I said, okay. A few weeks later, I hired an intern who was in a unique situation because she was actually a graduate. She wasn't in college anymore, but she was still an intern. So due to this, she did a great job, and I was able to hire her within like two months. And when she got hired, she told me, my mom wanted to let me to let you know that this was an answer to her prayers. Me and this young lady had never talked about God or spirituality, but that was it. Me staying there was answering the prayers of a mother who wanted her daughter to have her first job in this place. So my unanswered prayers were helping someone else. And there are times when things don't work out because something else is happening. So in these moments, it's not about getting what we want. It's about, I am listening to you, Lord. I am listening to you. If it be your will. And if an unanswered prayer means that I have to be in the darkness a little while longer, I'll still seek the glimmers until my eyes adjust to the darkness. So we don't always know when our prayers are answered. Sometimes our unanswered prayers are answered prayers too. But you'll know when you know. I promise. Thanks for the question. This next question comes from Dapple Rose Gray. How can I find contentment with my material possessions? It's a good question. So I think this is something we all struggle with. This usually happens when we focus on what others have. When we focus upon comparison, which is obviously the thief of joy. But I think it's also going beyond and transcending. This is why the monks ran into the caves. This is why saints like Francis, Benedict, Claire shaved their heads and gave up their kingdoms to find joy beyond the material. And these people, they were not saying that materialism is bad as I discussed in the St. John of the Cross episode. The lover saw the beauty in the material. She knew there was something more. She knew that the material was not the sole purpose of happiness. And thus, we should know that too. We should reflect on how these things in our life may bring us joy, but not fulfillment. We must reflect on what we have now and how beautiful those things are. And of course, if we 
need to be more comfortable if we need something because it will make us more happy and healthy by all means. Go for that. We must appreciate what we have and see that our joy transcends this. See that our joy and our love is beyond the material. Because you know that often where we are now, there may have been days in which we prayed to be there. So we must give thanks every morning. When the sink is overloaded with dishes, we must reflect on the fact that how good is God that we are able to eat so much that our sink is filled with dishes. When our commute is bothering us, we must reflect on the times in which we were without a job and give thanks to God for the opportunity to be stuck in traffic. Maybe even the opportunity in those moments to be sitting in silent prayer. When the house is a mess from our kids, we must thank God for the blessing of children and the blessing of a home that houses them. It's all about Thanksgiving because those material things will not fill the void in your soul. Only God can do that. We find God through what's already in front of us. So I hope that helps. Thank you for your question. All right, Helena asks, favorite prayer type, i.e. from the hard prayer card, rosary, written down prayer, etc. Um, hmm. I should be able to answer this pretty easily, but I can't. Favorite prayer type, um, Lexio Divina is, is um, a beautiful prayer that I, I enjoy the most. Just reflecting on scripture, psalms, and see what God is trying to speak to me through those moments. Honestly, my favorite prayer type is silent prayer. Silent as in silent mind as well. Just sitting in the presence of God and feeling God's love wash over me. And this can be an adoration. This can be at my own home. And sometimes I must follow that system of contemplative prayer, start with vocal prayer, go into meditation before I can get into a state that I can feel this, even though feeling it is not the point, but often just silent prayer. But I love the rosary. I love the Divine Mercy Chaplet. I love various liturgy of the hours, ziz. <laughs> but the prayer of the silent gaze is what Teresa of Avila called it, and that's certainly one of my favorites. Next question comes from... Catholic Justice, gonna do videos on any Pope Saints? Um, videos, like as in on Instagram and TikTok, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I will likely do episodes on Pope Saints in the future. I have written some things on Patreon on St. John Paul II. Um, popes are interesting because obviously they are figureheads, so there's a political element of it. Um, but St. John Paul II I find intriguing because I think he has this mystical side about him that people weren't aware of, um, this really deep mystical side. He wanted to be a Carmelite. He wanted to be a Carmelite monk. 
before he became a priest. So, yeah, I, I will certainly be doing some content on them. I do have some already on Patreon. I also have some on Pope Leo. The one that wrote the St. Michael prayer, I think it's the 13th. I have some content on him as well on Patreon. Final question. All right, final question comes from Christian. What advice would you give to LGBTQ plus Catholics who feel out of place in the faith? So, I have plenty of LGBTQ folks on my Discord, my Patreon, but more importantly, these people are my friends as well. Have plenty. I carpool with a um, with a couple to mass sometimes to Latin mass. So, what advice would I give you? So, it's hard for me to give advice because I'm I'm just a straight guy. So, I wish that I could give you something more palatable. However, I think first and foremost, you must understand that God loves you completely as you are. Your love is not a mistake. Your love is not disordered. Your love is true and your love is real. And you should not be defined any differently than the people you attend Mass with. Period. Right now, the Church is having discussions on how to be more welcoming to the gay community. And I pray that that goes in good directions. I know that there was the LGBTQ Catholic Conference recently. A few of my friends went to that in New York City. So there are places that are supposed to be more welcoming and open. So what f advice can I give you if you feel out of place? Is to not hide, to not hold back, to be authentically you in these spaces. Often when these conversations go online about gay Catholics, I talk to these people and it turns out they've never met a gay person in their life. <laughs> so be you. Show them how pious you are. Show them how much you love God. And show them that God loves you just as much as God loves them. Be strong in your faith. Know that the Blessed Virgin weeps for you, just like she wept for her son when those attack you. Know that you are welcomed. Know that God loves you. And if you are comfortable, speak to your priest. Speak to your confessor. I have friends on my Discord right now. They are actually a married couple who were accepted into a parish. And they do meet with their priest, so, so there was discussions there. I'm, I'm not sure what that means. So speak to a spiritual advisor to assist you in feeling welcomed. But overall, understand what this spirituality is about, and this is for anyone who feels left out. Anyone who feels unwelcomed, we have discussed the petty legalism of the faith that is antiquated and archaic and shouldn't even be there anymore, but it's still touted even though it's incorrect. Anyone who feels left out, remember this. Catholicism, Christianity, 
overall spirituality given to us by God on high is not this legalistic checklist. Rather, your life is defined by this. Your life is defined by, am I moving towards God in love or away from God in hate and ego? Am I being a living icon of God's love or am I turning my face away from him so I do not reflect him at all? That is what we are judged by. Not necessarily our sexuality, not our class, not our previous marriages, not our past sins. Am I moving towards God or away from God? And I know many gay couples, I'm related to a few, and their love is not sinful. Their love is beautiful, and their love brings them closer to God. So that's it. My heart breaks for you that you do not feel accepted. But if it's any solace, just know this. At the end, you will be judged not by your sexuality, rather by how close you are with God and if others saw God through your actions. And I am quite sure that you are a wonderful reflection of God's love. So simply continue doing that. God bless you. All right, now that wraps up this edition of The Lord's Line. How The Lord's Line is going to work for the rest of the season. It's going to be every three episodes or so, so every month. Feel free to submit your questions. Patrons on Patreon get first dibs. But I really enjoy doing this. Thank you for your support. Thank you for asking things, and thank you for spending time with me. May God bless you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We're going to end with a song. What that song is, I don't know. I'm going to figure it out in post-production. But I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you have an incredible day. Wherever you are, be easy on yourself. And remember that God loves you. Remember that God is seeking you. And remember that God is there with you right now. Even if you feel as if you have strayed away from him, it's impossible. God is always right there, beckoning you in with his love. Sometimes we just have to slow down to hear his call. May the sacred heart of Jesus grant you peace. God bless you. Until next time.
et tibi deturvotum in Jerusalem. Exauri orationem meo, arte omnis caru veniet. Requiem eternam. Yeah.